Hi, this is Barry Morrow. I'm the screenwriter of the movie Rain Man, and you are listening to On Screen and Beyond. On Screen and Beyond, an inside look into the entertainment world featuring interviews with people from the movie, TV, and music industry, news on upcoming TV and DVD releases, and the rumor mill. And now, here's the host of On Screen and Beyond, Brian Zemrak. Welcome to episode 75 of On Screen Beyond. Today we celebrate our 75th show with an Oscar-winning screenwriter, and he has some Great stories to tell us, inside stories to share with us. It's Barry Morrow. He wrote Rain Man, and he won an Oscar for that. And he also won an Emmy for another story he wrote, which starred Mickey Rooney. And he's going to talk about that in the interview. And I even got to hold his Oscar, so that was really something. I'll be posting that picture up on the website at onscreenbeyond.com, and it'll be in the photo gallery segment, so you can check that out. And uh, one very interesting interview is coming your way, so stick around for that it's coming up shortly right here on on screen and beyond but first let's see what's happening in the world of remake madness right here on on screen and beyond as far as remake madness it looks like the live action film version remake of he-man is headed off the map Warner has shelved the project, but stay tuned because you never know what's going to happen. It could change again. Also, Disney's remake of the story of Rapunzel has a few stars attached as the lead roles. Mandy Moore and Chuck star Zachary Levi will lead their uh, lend their voices to the film. And the long-talked-about remake of Judge Dredd may be picking up a little more steam, and we'll keep you uh, informed as we see what happens with that one. That's about it for Remake Madness. Coming up next, upcoming movies right here on On Screen and Beyond. Well, as far as upcoming movies, 2011 will bring us Dark Tide, starring Holly Berry, about a diving instructor who returns to the deep waters after a near-fatal encounter with a great white shark. Sharks are coming back. And also, Into the Basement, a horror movie about the unlikely hero who is called by the police department to find a sadistic killer and look for it to be released this year. And Heather Graham will star in a 2011 film called... Zoyachka. All right, now I'm not sure if I said that right, but that's what it looks like. And it's about a Russian actress who uh, was jailed and tortured during the 1940s for her relationship with an American naval officer. And it's a true story. And that's about it for upcoming movies on On Screen to Beyond. Coming up next, Sequel City, right here. Sequel City, it looks like Toxic Twins, The Toxic Avenger 5 is currently in development. The horror comedy adventure is looking for a 2011 release. And November 29th of this year, look for Dead Time Stories 2, starring George A. Romero as the host. And it's an anthology series type thing. Um, And it's also starring Nick Mancuso. And let's see, one other thing. A new Muppet movie is on the way, and it's called The Cheapest Muppet Movie Ever Made. And it was announced at the Disney D23 Expo. So that's about it for the sequel city on On Screen and Beyond. Coming up next, finding out what's coming your way as far as TV on DVD, right here on On Screen and Beyond.
TV on DVD, it looks like this week on uh, Tuesday, September 15th, the uh, Grey's Anatomy, the complete fifth season, will be coming your way, along with Private Practice, the complete second season. Also on Tuesday, September 15th, look for Bonanza, the official first season, volume one, and Bonanza, the first official season, volume two. Each one will be sold separately. Also, Laramie, the final season, is coming your way on uh, September 15th. You can check out our interview with Robert Fuller, who was one of the cast members of Laramie. And that's in episode 70 of On Screen and Beyond. So check it out on our uh, past reruns, uh, podcast reruns. And uh, it's on our page right there at On Screen and Beyond. And also check out One Step Beyond, the official first season. And that's about it for TV on DVD. Coming up next, we're going to find out what's coming your way as far as movies on DVD, right here on On Screen and Beyond. <laughs> movies on DVD, well, on September 15th, look for the Ultimate Force of Four box set featuring these four kung fu classics on Blu-ray. Hero, starring Jet Li, Iron Monkey, which features interviews in the extras department with Quentin Tarantino, who's a big fan of kung fu movies, and The Legend of Drunken Master, starring Jackie Chan, and Zatoichi, about a blind nomadic samurai. All right, and there's another one of those ones, and I'm not sure if I said it right, but uh, we'll see what we come up with on that one. And that's about it for Movies on DVD. Coming up next, we're going to be having our interview with screenwriter Barry Morrow, and he wrote Rain Man, and he, you know, just so many different things he's written. He's going to talk about all those things, and wait till you hear what happened to him at the Emmys, okay? This is something that uh, you won't hear everywhere else, okay? It's right here on On Screen and Beyond. That's coming up next, right here. On our 75th show with Barry Morrow, the Oscar-winning screenwriter of Rain Man. My guest today on On Screen and Beyond will give us a look into the screenwriting side of filmmaking. He's the person who brought us Rain Man, which starred Dustin Hoffman and Tom Cruise. It's Emmy and Oscar-winning writer Barry Morrow. Welcome to the show, Barry. Thank you so much, Brian. Now, uh, there's so much that we can talk about, um, but how did you start your career in, in writing? I started by not uh, trying to become a writer. Um, I was interested in media and uh, film and uh, the early days of portable video. Uh, Sony made a porta pack, which they said was portable. 60 pounds sounds a bit heavy, considering we carry around um, cameras in our you know, hip pockets and purses that uh, are much better than we had back then. But 60 pounds gave you a half an hour reel-to-reel, uh, uh, black and white, uh, with very little editing capabilities, but I got hooked on on the visual uh, opportunities uh, of storytelling. Oh, so, so it wasn't necessarily the writing itself first. Yeah, and I my background was in theater and children's theater, and I acted for a a, a season uh, in a summer stock company and in, while I was in high school, and and then did all you know all the high school musicals and plays and declamation and everything. So I had a theatrical background, but I hadn't 
you know, really seriously written anything other than maybe in my high school, uh, you know, writing assignments. But then shortly out of college, I met a man who uh, would become sort of my muse and touchstone for almost my career. His name was Bill, and he was mentally retarded, was a pot scrubber uh, and dishwasher at a country club where my then new wife, Beverly, was uh, a waitress. And this is Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota, where we, Bab and I both you know, grew up. Um, I, at the time, was, I had a variety of you know, menial sort of jobs. I was 21 years old, maybe 22, Bev was a year younger. Um, but every night, I would go to pick Bev up at the, this country club. I'd wait in a parking lot uh, behind where the kitchen was. And there was a window high up in this building where a face appeared around midnight. Uh, and he, he would wave to me every night through this, the distance of the third story in the parking lot and then the, the Minnesota winter and the ice and the windows and everything else. But every night without fail, he would wave to me. And there was a Christmas party eventually for the employees. And I went inside this particular evening, and, and there he was in the flesh, uh, sitting across the room and you know, drinking a glass of water, despite the fact that there was free champagne and you know, lovely hors d'oeuvres and things. And I sat down with him, and he um, you know, immediately started calling me Buddy, as if we'd been friends forever. And he couldn't remember his last name, or I, you know, I thought maybe he was he'd been drinking, but this was this was Bill. And you know, turns out eventually the story I learned was that at age seven he was institutionalized. By the time he got out, nearly fifty years later, his family was dead or dispersed. He was friendless, penniless, you know, clueless. And so, without really meaning to, I ended up. Uh, just being his buddy and taking him out for, you know, toothpaste was the first request he had for me. The day after this party, by the way, <laughs> after I had drunk all the champagne <laughs> for the first time in my life and learned what a hangover was. Um, and it was, I just found it was, you know, I'm 22 years old, he's whatever, 60, uh, and looked 80 because he was in very kind of unkempt, you know, uh, appearance and a goiter on his neck and his teeth were bad and overweight and everything but he had a wonderful soul and he played the harmonica and that's what we did when i'd it was just easy for me to be with bill you know if i needed to do my own errands i'd just swing by and see if bill was available to go with and he was always available uh and a friendship you know and then more than a friendship i mean i really felt like i was the only person in the world who cared about bill other than Bev, and then the friends we introduced him to and stuff. and um, Then I got a job offer out of state to teach at a college three, four hundred miles away and left Bill behind. I had no choice. He was a, a ward of the state, and, um, uh, you know, I had a brand new baby then, and, uh, you know, life goes on. Well, I got a call from a social worker about six, eight months after we left Bill, that he was in the hospital. Apparently, after we left, he just let his you know health go to hell, and 
his this leg which I had helped him with that was had the sort of chronic problems with they were now going to amputate and send him back to the institution and I just knew that would they might as well amputate his head you know and take out his heart and take all the parts away because that was going to kill him and so I kidnapped him I mean that's what they said I did oh really they yeah, they said I kidnapped him because he was a ward of the state, and and I just took him. Out of, out yeah, of the state. I took him, went to his little place, and packed. We packed up his little black and white color TV and a few clothes he had, and and I took him to where we were living, and got his leg back fine. I mean, I you know took him to doctors, and and now I had a you know six month old baby and a sixty some year old man. And a new job, and it was. I realized, wow, I've really gotten in over my head. But there's like no, what am I going to do? Yeah. Eventually, and I'm, I don't mean to, t- to drag this out much further, but eventually, you know, Bill took root in this university town. We established uh, out of thin air basically a coffee shop that became known as Wild Bill's Coffee Shop. Bill was, you know, we taught him to make coffee. That was it. He didn't sell anything but coffee. And it was on campus uh, next to lots of buildings with, you know, students and faculty rushing here and there who didn't have a good coffee vending machine anywhere in sight. So Bill's establishment thrived. And I one day sat down and decided to write this whole thing out just as a memoir for my kids and grandkids and, you know, the future. Passed it out among friends. And before I... You know, knew it. I got a phone call from CBS in New York saying they had somehow come across a copy of this story and thought it would be a terrific television movie. And the long and short of it is, we made the movie called Bill, starred Mickey Rooney uh, as Bill and Dennis Quaid, a young Dennis Quaid played a young me, <laughs> and uh, uh, and it was a hit, a huge hit came out right before Christmas, you know, stole a nation's heart. And uh, next thing I know, you know, Mickey Rooney and I and others are picking up Emmys for, for this. And I had a career. So, I mean, that must have been a thrill, though, to all of a sudden find out that you're getting an Emmy for, you know, something that you just wrote for, from your heart. I mean, yeah, well, it was, except I uh, stabbed myself with my Emmy. So that wasn't much of a thrill. Do you want to know how that happened? Yeah, but, I mean... See, Oscar's a fairly safe award to receive. I mean, unless you bludgeon yourself with it, there's no sharp edges. Emmy, however, is a female with these very sharp wings. And uh, one of which, on my particular trophy, came to a razor-sharp point. The other one, not so. And after Leonard Nimoy and... What's his name? Uh, uh, William Shatner. Yeah. Yeah. Happened to be the presenters in our writing category handed me the the Emmy. I went backstage like everybody does into pitch blackness, and I'm waiting for my turn to go into the press room to be interviewed. And some other people came up, and I took a step back and didn't know that we were on like six foot risers and with a black curtain behind. And I just disappeared into the into the ether. Uh, I mean, and they literally looked around and said, where did he go? And I landed uh, on the with my thigh right here uh, in, 
impaling myself on Miami. <laughs> and I pulled it out, and I thought, okay, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm good to go. And I found a, a way back around, and then I, I heard this odd sound in my shoe, which was when. <laughs> and I looked down, and it was filled with blood. And I made a mad dash for the nearest restroom, which happened to be about 800 yards away. And went into a stall. There's nobody else in there. And I looked in my, uh, you know, my leg was pumping out blood like a little oil well. I figured I've hit some, I don't know, something. And they had one of these toilet paper dispensers that only give you like one sheet at a time, despite the fact it's in a, a mammoth three foot, you know, wide dispenser. And I, I was so desperate, I sort of cracked the thing in half and took out this roll and wrapped and wrapped and wrapped and wrapped until I thought, I'm good. Then I went back around to the, to the, where you enter the auditorium, I think it was in the Shrine Auditorium or something, and uh, in L.A. And you have to wait for commercial breaks, and then you're reseated. And so there's Bev. You know, waiting. She hasn't seen me since they announced my name, and I stood up and dashed away. And and she looks at me and she said, "You know, you know, I'm so proud, and and you've worked so hard." And she said, "But you know, you look so pale." And I said, "Well, I've lost a lot of blood." She thought it was some sort of writerly comment, you know. She said, "Well, Barry, we all have, you know. I mean, this is you can do this all by yourself." I said, "No, I've lost a lot of blood." <laughs> what? And so, uh, anyway, this is a rented tuxedo. This is the first thing I'd ever been to yeah. like this. Well, you know, part two of the story is I had to return this tux the next day to this nice little old Jewish couple who, you know, were so excited that their their tuxedo was, you know, going to the Emmys. Yeah. Then when I walk in, you know, yeah, come quick, our tuxedo's back, the one that won the Emmy, and and you know, and I gave him the coat, and I said, "Well, here's the coat. As you can see, it's in perfect shape." You know, and I had the pants behind my, my back, and I said, "But I had an accident with this." And they looked at it, and they saw this big rip and all the blood, and it was caked on. You know, and they thought about it, and they said, "You know, when we saw our, our tuxedo Vietnamese last night, it was so great. We don't care, no charge." So. Uh, Friends told me that they went by this shop sometime later and they had the, the tuxedo up on display with a little sign. The tuxedo that won the Emmy. You know. anyway. Did you have to go to the hospital for stitches? Or? I healed. I still have a weird you know, indentation scar there. And wow. I don't know. But you didn't pass out at the Emmys or anything like that? No. Well, you ask, what's it like to win? And I guess you don't feel a lot of pain. <laughs> yeah. you know, as you were saying that, I'm thinking... Uh, I mean, I know it's you know you're bleeding and everything, but uh, it sounded almost like a comedy where you go into. It is the, a comedy. You, know, you could write yourself another story with just. You know. Well, and uh, yeah, also wonder well, well, so I supposed to win this, or, you know? But uh, it if uh, you, you can't take these things too seriously anyway. If you do, you're just lost. Yeah. And uh, you know, I've had these. I can't even put the these awards out because they're just so. Sort of, anybody could have won these things. I mean, I had to stumble upon a mentally retarded man who basically glommed on to me. And one day I write a little story, and the next thing I know, I'm a screenwriter that won an Emmy. You know, it's 
you can't get too big-headed about these sort of things. It takes a lot of timing and serendipity and just, you know, a great story. And they, this and then, of course, late, later Rain Man kind yeah, of stumbled well, yeah, not, into my life the same way. Not too far after that, you had the Rain Man come about. So how yeah. did that one... Uh, well, in between, you know, I was now established TV writer, and I did movies like the Karen Carpenter story. Right, and yeah. Actually, there was, you know, a pretty successful sequel to Bill called Bill on His Own, right, yeah. which, you know, picks Bill up where we left him at the end of part one, which is Barry and Bev and family are moving to Hollywood, you know, to so Barry can see if he can make a career out of it. So you did use your real names, and yeah. I, mean, I, I remember yeah. the movie, but I can't remember the details yeah. of the names and everything. So it yeah, was. it was it was pretty much spot on in terms of what happened. Yeah, I mean, given the limitations of a, telling your life story in two hours, right, um, and and the exaggerations that have to come with it too. So the points are made forcefully, but um, you know, we left for for California, not Hollywood, but everybody thinks. If you're writing and you're in the movies, somehow you you know you live in Hollywood. We lived an hour out of Hollywood in a little quaint town that looked just like the Minnesota or the Midwestern town. We left called Claremont, California, and uh, but we we made the sequel in '83, and Bill died uh, right after we filmed finished filming uh, at age seventy of the leg. It came back and did. You know, get him twelve years after they wanted to amputate it. You know, but um, but you know, wow, what a transformation in his life and uh, and in ours. And so when he passed away, I kind of felt morally obligated to kind of continue to do something to honor you know what he meant to us. And so there was this organization called the Association for Retarded Citizens, which had chapters all over the country and so you know two weeks out of the year I was going to devote some volunteerism thing to that organization that led me to Arlington Texas where they had their national headquarters at the time and it was there that uh, during a coffee break on one of these committees that I was on that I wandered down a hallway and I and I heard this odd sort of sound uh, Somebody in need of help, or I, you know, I open a door. Turns out to be a little library room, and there's this fellow with his back to me, who's flipping pages rather quickly. And I thought, okay, well, this is like a client or something, or you know, we are at the you know Association for Retarded Citizens, so I'll ask if I can help. He looks like he's looking for something, so I asked this fellow. You know, can I help you find something? He says, no, I'm reading. Said, oh, you're reading. You know, and then I notice, pulls another book, and it's upside down, and he's flipping pages, and it's, but he's really intent on doing what he's doing. You know, like I'm an annoyance. You know, well, wow, I said, you know, you really can read fast. Little, my little joke, right? Yeah. Well, as it turns out, his father comes in a little bit later, and I meet him. We discuss this, and by the end of the day, I discover that I have encountered, without knowing that there was a name I would give to him later, Rain Man. Uh, and he is and was indeed reading. He can read upside down, backwards. It doesn't matter. He, really, really yes, upside down. Yeah. yeah. Um, he uh, 
basically, I guess the best way to describe it would be scans the books, and they are then permanently locked into the hard drive that is his incredible, amazing, incomprehensible brain. Yeah. Uh, that is so unique that even NASA has you know studied it and modeled it so that it's around forever because they can't make heads or tails out of how Kim's you know brain actually works. Yeah. Um, so he you know he scans quicker than you or, or I would you know pretty much just flip a page. If he wants to double his rate of speed, he'll read the left page with his left eye and the right page with his right eye. And he has a 99.8% you know, lockdown comprehension that never goes away. And, you know, I, you know, I began asking him obscure questions of things. And, and there are areas I realize he doesn't know anything. And then there are areas which are now, uh, I guess, up to around 14 uh, subject areas where he has virtual complete mastery. Classical music is one, sports is another. After we made the movie Rain Man, he added movies to his area of expertise. And so when you go down the Hollywood Walk of Fame and, and stop at a star and see some name that is absolutely lost to obscurity, a you know, silent film star from 1912 or something, yeah. He'll tell you who they were, what films they made, when they were born, the day of the year they were born on, and, you know, wow. and ad infinitum. I mean, there's just, it's hard to ever come close to reaching the depth of knowledge that he has when you are in the one of those 14 subject areas. I mean, I have trouble remembering what, what the family wants when we go to Burger King or McDonald's. <laughs> well, he has, if you ask him, where do you keep the forks? in your house, and he's having lived in the same place for, you know, I don't know, forever, uh, he, does, he doesn't have a clue. Hmm. Because forks are not in, interesting to him. They're yeah. not important. And they always seem to be right there when he needs them. It's his father's role. Yeah. And he grabs a fork and uses it to eat. But he doesn't care where they come from, doesn't care where they go to. You know, he's back to his books. And... Um, absorbing knowledge like perhaps no one ever has in the history of, of, of the human race. Now, when you wrote uh, Rain Man, did the, um, the, the way they portrayed it, Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman, did they, did they match what was in your head when you wrote that story? No, but no, you know, movies never do match the writer's vision. I mean, unless the writer's the director and the producer and the star, like Woody Allen. Yeah. You know, when it says it's a film by Woody Allen, it is. Yeah. When it's a film by almost anybody else who didn't conceive of it, didn't write the story, didn't write the treatment, didn't write the screenplay, and didn't act in it, it's, I think, you know, a bit of a stretch to say it's a film by. It's a bit, bit piggish, I think. And it's one of the things screenwriters have such a hard time swallowing when, you know... I mean, I had a friend who did a picture that started with another director, and then they fired him, and they brought in a replacement director, and it ended up a film by. Well, it had been written, cast, locations, everything else. He was the director on the set, you know, and you know directed the picture, but that's what he did. 
And he directed the picture. And he didn't, it's not a, anyway, he obviously you've stumbled onto a sore, <laughs> a sore spot. Uh, but, it, uh, you know, I realized, first of all, in writing it, I couldn't really uh, write the full scope of what, who Kim was and what he could do without straining credulity to the point where the audience would start to laugh. You know, people, it's, is it conceivable that somebody memorized A through G uh, in a phone book uh, in, a, in a short stretch of time one night and then sees a waitress's name the next morning and uh, Sally Dibbs, Dibbs Sally, and then tells her her phone number? It's a big stretch. Yeah. And it can, was... Can Kim really do that? Yeah. Yeah, then I mean, but Kim could do the whole phone book, you know, and and so I mean the bit about reading with his left eye and the right eye and stuff. I mean when I said mentioned it to you, you said really. See, you have to be careful. You don't make a a movie of too many reallys. Yeah. Because then the bottom falls out and people think that they've been had, when in fact you know they only they only saw the surface of what Kim could do if they saw the movie Rain Man. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't about. You know, it wasn't Kim's story. I knew when I met him that I had to create uh, a movie for this character. And having, you know, done the Bill movie, which was about, you know, two strangers who meet a completely different, uh, you know, places in life that they've come from, and that it was really a, a story built on, you know... Uh, kind of altruism and a few of these rare qualities that I didn't want to repeat that same movie. Mm-hmm. In fact, I said to myself and to my agent and others, because they always were trying to get me away from the disabilities mm-hmm. story, they say, you're going to be pigeonholed. You know, with the ones I had done up to that time, I did a story about a, a guy with Lou Gehrig's disease and, uh, you know, anorexia nervosa from, from uh, Karen Carpenter. And, you know, I was like the disease guy. And uh, mental retardation and others, uh, so uh, you know everyone was actually saying you shouldn't even do this movie, hmm. you know. And I said, well, I don't have a choice, you know. Yeah. I really have to do it. And as I learned later in life, it's the only thing I was ever able to write, you know, authoritatively, and with a kind of from my heart was this stuff. It's the same kind of stuff. I'm doing it today, and you know, I tried the action adventure and genre and other things that I, that's not where my talents are I don't, yeah. I don't i get up in the morning i don't care enough to go to the, my computer so um so i've learned to stick with that but at the time i i knew i couldn't repeat bill and i said well what what if i just turn that story upside down instead of it being two strangers what if all right let's make them what brothers um what's the what's the glue that holds them together Instead of just sort of kindness, since let's you know what motivates people. What 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 do people want? They want money, power. Uh, you know, uh, these were all the opposite or the antithesis themes that went into Bill. So I had a brother. I figure, well, how how can you exploit someone like a Kim, and there be money in it or something? You know, and I guess well the inheritance came up pretty quickly in the thinking process. And then I had read about somebody who had, you know, had a brother they never knew existed and 
learned later in life, you know, that you know that sort of family had kept this a secret. That, that crept into my story making processes, and um, and the the Vegas thing came a little bit later. And when I when I realized this is where you exploit a person like Kim Peek or Rain Man, and then I knew I had a movie. Yeah, I knew I had a movie. In fact, when I pitched it to the studio uh, for the first time. You know, I, I talked about the first act and the brothers and the family and the, and the father dying, leaving the money, you know, the inheritance to the brother who discovers and going to the institution that he had a brother he never, you know, knew, knew about and stuff and that he got the money and he was going to try to get it back. You know, that's all first act set up. And I didn't have a second act other than they were going to get in a car and drive across the country and it was a road picture and, 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 but, you know, what I said in the meeting is it doesn't really matter what they do in the second act. They can go anywhere. Once these, once these characters are established and their motives are established and the, and the contrast between them, it's Abbott and Costello or any two guys are going to hit heads all the time, no matter what happens. And I said, but let's go to Vegas. And so I took a right to the, in the pitch, and took a right to the, to the, you know, sort of penultimate, uh, scene in the picture and and they forgot about that I didn't have a second act and then you know at the end basically in another kind of version I told the story of how the, the, the brothers connect in a way that uh, was not you know as fulfilling as say Bill where you really felt like Bill was going to be okay and that Barry had really grown through the ex experience that, and it was changed forever. And with the kind of ironic ending of Rain Man, where you know he's going back to the institution, you know, which is what I did everything I could in my power to keep Bill from doing. You know, Rain Man ends up going back and not really mindful of it in a in a way because of his because of who he was, and that Cruz was. You know, the character of Charlie Babbitt, Tom Cruise, was was changed also on a cellular level, but um, but it didn't, uh, it wasn't altogether satisfying. You left the theater and you kind of, you know, I, I sense people did, they talked about it, you know. And it reminded me of the kind of endings that movies had in the 60s when I was, you know, young and yeah. just, you know, in love with film and and they rarely had happy endings. The, you know, the, the main character either died, uh, you know, died trying. Uh, uh, Dustin Hoffman gets, you know, in Razzle Rizzo gets to Florida and he's dead. Yeah. Jack Nicholson, you know, gets through that all that crap at, in Cuckoo's Nest and he gets and he's dead. And you know what happened, unfortunately, because uh, there is something awfully satisfying about somebody who'll go to the end of the line, as far as they can go, and if they still haven't gotten their goal, at least they, they died trying. Mm -hmm. And audiences will accept that. Um, and I wondered if they would accept it with Rain Man, because it's not, it doesn't give you everything. You know, it doesn't give you the... He doesn't get win the girl, and he doesn't win the prize. He doesn't, and he doesn't die. Um, 
But and by the way, the reason they stopped making those movies is because there were no sequels then. And you know Hollywood's figured. I gonna, yeah, I was going to ask. Figure you, it have out. Have they ever asked you to do a sequel to to it? I mean, nowadays they bring people back from the dead and everything else. But I mean, well, we did. Um, uh, you know, it didn't didn't occur to me until um, I'd heard talk about. You know, some people were knocking ideas around for a sequel, and I thought, well, wait a second. As the originator of the story, that sequel rights belong only to me, and so I I. Talked to Dustin Hoffman, and I worked with. I told him I, an idea I had for a sequel, and I worked with him and this guy, his friend Murray Shiskel, and then uh, I pitched it to the studio. Oh, you did. Okay. And the guy and the head of the studio said, "Sounds like a movie to me. Let's do it." Well, the agency that uh, where Hoffman, Cruz, and Barry Levinson all were, which is CAA, where I ended up later. Um, they could not. They wouldn't agree to make a um, a deal for that package until the script was written and everything else. And the studio didn't want to spend all the money development until they had these guys locked in, and it just never happened. I'm surprised. I mean, it, it's an Oscar-winning movie, yeah. so they know you know you're going to come up yeah. with something good. I mean. Well, but you know, and then but see, Tom Cruise's career took off in a way that nobody could expect. Uh, well, maybe some people expected it, and but you know, prior to Rain Man, he'd just done the movie Cocktail, yeah. which is not you're not going to win an Academy Award for doing Cocktail, and so I mean, I personally, and I can't, I guess whispering doesn't really help, but I thought it was a terrible idea because Dustin Hoffman, who had committed to it like right away, he was the the first guy in, uh, was 50 years old when the movie was made. Tom Cruise was 25, mm -hmm. and I just thought, how is this going to work? It's just not going to work, you know? It, it, you're not going to buy them as brothers. I mean, it's conceivable that two guys could have been born 25 years apart. I have a brother who's 17 years, years younger than me, but 25? Yeah. And, of course, you know, I was wrong, because when you see that scene in the picture of those two guys coming down the escalator and they're matching Armani's, it's like... Wow, you know, yeah. and it never became an issue, and so. You know, I mean, they did such a good job yeah, doing it. Yeah. It was totally believable, and that that goes with the writing, of course. That. Uh... But but Tom Cruise went off then. Uh, I think it really established his career as a really serious, talented actor. I don't think he's done anything better than that, frankly. And always felt badly that he didn't get more acclaim because if he hadn't done a good job, the movie would not have worked. Rain Man, it's the title role, it's the money role, it's the Oscar, you know, I'm sure Cruz knew that going in. In fact, the picture was originally offered to to, uh, to Jack Nicholson and uh, uh, and Bill Murray. Really? Yeah. Now, see, I... By the, by the producer, uh, by the agent. Hmm. Mike Ovitz was the, you know, he was Hollywood. And he, those, these were his clients, and when he got the script, it was his job to, to, uh, you know, to make these decisions. Yeah. Uh, I said Jack Nicholson. I'm, excuse me. He was considered, but it was sent to Dustin Hoffman and Bill Murray the same weekend, and it did not say on the scripts which role was intended for which person, yeah. and Hoffman. Read it immediately, called Ovitz and said, "I'll only I'll do it, 
but I have to be Rain Man. And Bill Murray, you know, apparently didn't read it or didn't care or whatever, and that's the guy they were thinking would play, you know, the Rain Man role, the Raymond Babbitt. And they thought uh, Hoffman would play uh, the Tom Cruise role, Charlie Babbitt. And, And the brothers were, you know, as I envisioned it, they were they were 25 years apart. You know, they're closer in age. So went to guys who are relatively the same age. And uh, then Hoffman was in, and then Cruz came very late, almost at the point where they weren't sure they were going to be able to make the picture because we, we had a looming writer's strike. You know, first big one in, you know, in a long time. And, uh, and the picture was made entirely during the writer's strike. So Cruz uh, Cruz came in right at the end. I had like no say, you know, whatsoever, and and I thought it was dumb. If they had asked me, I would have told them, and that wouldn't have earned me any points. So I'm glad they didn't. And I, and then I got to see the movie like everybody else uh, in a theater, you know, obviously a very special theater and a special screening. And of course, Kim, Peak, and Fran were there with us, and we arrived at the Directors Guild for the uh, premiere screening. You know, in a limo and all that stuff. And it was L.A., and it hadn't rained in probably eight months. And the night we arrived, just as the, our limo pulled up and we opened, got out of the, it started to rain. And there was all this pop, paparazzi, as you can imagine, and they're all taking pictures of you know, Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman and anybody who looked like anybody. Yeah. And they didn't even see Kim Peek. You know, they didn't even see the real Rain the Man real, coming up in the rain. Probably the most important person. I think you know, so. In, in, well, there would be no movie with if he had not been in that library room. Yeah. I mean, every movie has a genesis and a, a story, but um, it's the reason why I always like to, you know, help shine the light on on the, the Fran and Kim, and not just for inspiring the movie, because like Bill. He gave me my start. They gave me the, you know, the biggest trophy on you know, my mantle. Um, but they've done something extraordinary with, you know, past way past the point of the movie, which Fran and Kim have been traveling around the country and indeed the world, talking to anybody who invites them from elementary schools to Oxford University, where they've been given a, you know. Uh, honorary doctorate degrees yeah. about uh, about Kim, his uniqueness, uh, about the theme of accepting people, uh, you know, for who they are, and a kind of embracing the their differences rather than ostracizing them for for them. Uh, you know, the institutions all over the world are closing down and shuttering, and people are coming back to the world where they belong. And Fran and Kim have been champions of that, you know, that message, yeah. and so. 17 years ago when they stopped at uh, our house for one of their occasional visits, um, the second great idea I had in my life, which was to let them take the Oscar with them right, yeah. on, these, uh, on these talks. And now this Oscar, they tell me, has been handled by 360-some thousand people wow. uh, who had their photographs with it and all say, oh, how heavy it is. And, they all say, I'd like to thank, and then they laugh. And it's, just, it's so funny to watch, you know, people. But it's great. It's one of the few Oscars that's not behind bulletproof glass. It's There's very little gold in the trunk of the Oscar where you hold it. It's, you know, it's got very thick gold 
plate, but it is yeah. plate, and yeah. 360 some thousand hands later, you know, it's just dull from the you know lead showing through, and it's been dropped a couple of times. I mean, it's it's been through the uh, through the mill, but like, uh, but it you know it symbolizes something that's more than a movie to me, and and it's uh, and so it's still working. You know, it's yeah. still well, it's. It's a road picture, so these guys are on the road. Yeah, yeah. And, and I got to thank you because uh, I, I too saw your Oscar sitting there on the table while we were having yeah. dinner the other night. And the first thing I and I have my picture taken yeah. with it. It's just you know, it's one of those things that you're drawn right to. Yeah. And um, you know, I, I'm guilty of, of doing like everyone else does. I'm sure it's an icon. I've I've learned to appreciate the power of it, but also that's why I gave it to them because that unlocks doors. I mean, they get upgraded to first class when they go through the, you know, the screening thing because they never allow it to just be, you know, in their bags. And, of course, it's still the stories that they've told about it. When this thing goes through the x-ray machine, usually everything stops. And what is that? Is it what it looks like? And then they have the, you know, the security guys come and then they take it out and they look at it and then they have to decide... Whether it's a blunt instrument, and I, I told him, tell him never take an Emmy on board, but you <laughs> yeah, can take an yeah, Oscar. You probably wouldn't be able to. And, and and often it's they have to put it up front in the you know, with the pilots because of it's you know it is a potential weapon I guess, yeah. Yeah. and but then the pilots always come back to say hello, and then often the flight attendants will will tell you know over the intercom that we have very special guests, and and then they. You know, they give they give them the nice big business or first class seats if they're available, and uh, it's great. I mean, Oscar is you know hasn't made a lot of money for me. Um, when I wrote it, I was a brand new TV writer trying to do a feature film for the first time, but uh, but it continues to you know to give back. Yeah, and it's great. Well, I I don't want to hold you up because I know that the. It's, it's, we had set a certain time and we've, we've gone over well it. You've, I see you've got 30 questions well, <laughs> is there one or two more that you just uh, really need to ask well <laughs> basically what is, do you have anything in the works that you can tell us about hmm. yeah um, well, one of the, earlier I said how I, I learned long ago that I can write certain things and um, it's not what Hollywood's making anymore as I said you know, Rain Man would be impossible to sell today it's just now they're doing sequels, they're doing comic books, they're doing everything but, you know, Rain Man. And so I've had to carve out a niche in the, uh, you know, independent world, which is, you know, where you get a My Left Foot or, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And um, But I did write a story for the studio, uh, one of the big studios, just after uh, the success of Rain Man. And, in fact, it was... Uh, Dustin Hoffman committed to play the the lead role in that, and Steven Spielberg was to direct it. And Some big names. It was a pretty big uh, feather that was going to go in my hat, and like I mean, every writer's got his tales of woe, and it had nothing to do with the you know merits of the project. But Spielberg dropped out, and then the studio couldn't agree on another director, and by the time. Hoffman was out, and Bill Murray was in. Here's Bill Murray's name again, and then and and uh, Robin Williams, and and then the thing Billy Crystal had just ground into dust. And I got a call from somebody at Disney who'd said they were going through all their 
you know, archival records of A plus five star scripts that you know had that they knew were out there, and they noticed that this one had not been made, and what's the status on it? And so, you know, there may be life in it after all. Great. But um, I've I've worked on for five years on a on a super secret topic that I can't divulge right here. Okay. It will if it happens it will be by far the biggest thing I've ever been involved with. Um it's sort of a holy grail of projects that nobody's been able to pull off and and again I stumbled kind of like down the wrong alley and ended up with a perchance per uh uh a hope of doing it. That's where you seem to get your best work on things that you stumble upon. Yeah, right, it seems yeah. Like. yeah, yeah. You go through the front door, you know, and somebody's there to say you don't belong. You go down the side road and sneak in the back window, and there it is. The, there's that holy grail, you know. So that's been the the luck of my Irish, and uh, you know, hopefully, I got a few more years to see if something else happens. Great, we can't wait to see. Yeah. You know. In the meantime, other things happen, like, you know, grandkids, of which I've got three. And, yeah. and my priorities are always to tell stories, but usually it's making up stories to tell them as they get to bed. And if more movies happen, great. And if they if they don't, uh, I've got something of a legacy. So hmm. time to hit the golf links. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. Well, thank you. I appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. <laughs> And, of course, we want to thank Barry so much for taking the time and sharing his stories with us. He's a great person, a lot of fun to be around, and uh, I was I had the opportunity to hold that Oscar, and I'll tell you, it's it's amazing how heavy that is. Uh, you know, it's not something, you know, you look at it and it doesn't seem to be that heavy, but it was really something to uh, hold that. It was kind of kind of neat. And uh, you'll have a chance to see the picture. Uh, if you go to onscreenandbeyond.com, go to the photo gallery, you'll get a chance to see that there. I'm going to post it up there. And uh, I'll probably have some pictures of Barry and everything up there, and uh, we'll see. And uh, you'll actually see the actual Rain Man, too. So uh, those are fun to uh, to look at. And uh, I also want to thank all the people who are sending suggestions in for future guests. Now, uh, you know, we're trying to make connect- connections with each and every one of them, and hopefully, hopefully, we're going to be able to get some of them to agree to be on the show. And sometimes it's hard to even get a connection with these people, but uh, some of them we will connect with, I'm sure, and uh, hopefully they'll be a guest on the show. And uh, continue to send your suggestions because sometimes, you know, we don't think of a certain thing, and uh, we'll see the suggestions you make. Yeah, yeah, that'd be a good one. So, you know, send them in. We'll see what we can do. And that's about it for our 75th episode. And we have a lot of great guests coming your way in future episodes. Of course, Robert Wagner will be a guest coming up very shortly. And uh, he's got some great stories to tell because he he, he has been around just about every single Hollywood legend that was ever in the movies and he's got so many great stories to tell about them and uh, he's going to be right here on on screen and beyond in a couple of weeks so uh, if you have a question you'd like to ask uh, robert all you can do is go to our website and send us an email at feedback at on screen and beyond dot com and ask a question and we'll see if we can get it in there like i say we can't get them all unfortunately but we'll pick a few and we'll ask robert uh, some questions that you have all right and um, we'll see what we can do about uh, getting as many as we can so until next time this is brian saying take care